Hello, welcome to the Elliott Bay Book Company. Um, we are very excited to welcome Bill McKibben here tonight. Um, even though I know none of you are Seahawk fans, I'm not either, obviously. Um, I'm, it's so great to have you all here tonight. Um, it's great to have Bill here uh, celebrating his first novel, uh, Radio Free Vermont. Um, Bill is an author and environmentalist who won in 2014, uh, who in 2014 was awarded the um, Right Livelihood Prize, uh, sometimes called the Alternative Nobel. Uh, his book, The End of Nature, is regarded as the first book for a general audience about climate change, and he has appeared in 24 languages, or the book has appeared in 24. I think he can speak 24 languages. He, <laughs> Uh, he translated them all himself. Um, he is the founder of 350.org, which they got to meet tonight in the cafe. It's fantastic, and I'm sure a lot of you heard about this event tonight because of them. Um, it's the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement, uh, which has organized 20,000 rallies around the world, spearheaded the resistance to the Keystone Pipeline, and la launched the fast-growing fossil fuel divestment movement. Um, foreign policy named him to their inaugural list of the world's 100 most important global thinkers, and the Boston Globe said he was probably America's most important environmentalist. Um, he's a former staff writer for The New Yorker. He writes frequently for a wide variety of publications around the world, including New York Review of Books, National Geographic, The Rolling Stone. Um, so tonight he's going to read from his novel, uh, Radio Free Vermont, and then he's going to talk a bit. We'll have time for questions and answers. Um, he's going to sign in the back. We have KUOW recording tonight, which we're always happy to have them here. So when you ask a question, try and keep it pretty organized so he can repeat it back so they can get that as well. So please welcome to the stage, Bill McKibben. Well, thank you. It's a great, it's always a great pleasure to be in Seattle and see dear friends, and a great pleasure always to be at Elliott Bay. Um, um, I, you catch me, I'm afraid, at somewhat less than my absolute best. Um, I haven't been on the road for a month, um, uh, organizing mostly and doing some book touring and things. and. It's always a great pleasure. Every place I've gone, I've gotten, as we did tonight, to sit down with the local 350 group, and there's really nobody doing it better than uh, 350 in Seattle and on the east side. And if before I forget, tomorrow at noon at Westlake Plaza, JP, what, what bank are we? JP Morgan. JP Morgan Chase. Um, is needs a reminder that they should not be funding bad things that wreck the planet. And there's that message has gone out strongly to banks in Seattle, thanks to y'all. So keep it up, tomorrow will be good. I've gotten to meet with all those groups all over the place and I've had the pleasure of being in, in independent bookstores night after night after night. It's always worth remembering. 
that communities that took their independent bookstores for granted no longer have independent bookstores. Um, so it's, you know, I, I know that I have to be very careful in Seattle. You know, you don't want to say anything too bad about all your dominant local industries. And this book, be <laughs> this book begins with, with, with a few remarks about Starbucks, I must say, which I think I'll skip over just no, for fear of appending anyone. <laughs> Maybe I'll read it. Um, but um, uh, 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 this is an important place. Um, I'm also a little groggy because the day began early today because we had this decision uh, from the, uh, Nebraska on the Keystone Pipeline stuff. And, and, and as has been true of almost everything to do with the Keystone Pipeline for the last seven or eight years, it was entirely murky and impossible to understand what was going on. And we've spent all day in conference calls with lawyers. I've spent half the day in conference calls with lawyers trying vainly to understand exactly what it all means, and the other half uh, talking with TV journalists as if I knew precisely what it meant. So, uh, you know, between the two of those things, I'm a little... Um, but it appears to be at least sort of good news. They approved a route for the pipeline, but it wasn't the route that TransCanada had asked them to approve. And so now they may have to go back and do some more studies or talk with some more landowners or do some more things. As has always been the case, delay on all of these things is our friend. Um, and for eight years now, we've kept 800,000 barrels of the dirtiest oil on earth underground every day. And that'll last a little while longer anyway. And, and, and that's good. This book is uh, a departure for me um, in that it's fiction, which I've not written before, at least on purpose. And, um, and it's, um, well, all the reviewers have very been very kind, especially pointing out that it's funny. And I'm not actually sure how funny it really is. It's possible that if you've spent your life writing incredibly depressing uh, texts with titles like The End of Nature, that anything less than that just seems lighthearted and amusing. It may be sort of, you know, look that dog can walk on its hind legs, you know, kind of um, uh, appreciation. But I've been grateful for it. And for me, it was fun to write. And I've been writing it over the years uh, just kind of in my, uh, just in one hotel room or another, just for fun to kind of keep myself sane over these last eight or nine years of pretty much full-on organizing. And um, I finally decided this was the year to publish it because it's such a depressing year that it seemed impossible to add to the burden of that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there are days when it just feels to me as if the president has somehow managed to put a dose of reverse Prozac in the water, and we're just all anxious and sad at all times, and some strange combination of sort of jittery and, and uh, upset and whatever. So maybe the year not only for something that uh, a little fun, but it's also a kind of love letter to 
the one good thing that's happened this year, which is this profound spread of resistance. Um, you know, it's fun to see some of my great colleagues here tonight who've been building resistances for a long time, but something different has happened this year. And um, it's um, spread out into the larger world in a beautiful and necessary way. So this is the story of, this is story, and the other reason that I kept writing it was because I have not gotten to be home as much as I would have liked over these last years. And so it was a good way to kind of um, get to think about home anyway a little bit. And home for me is on the other side of the country in Vermont, um, up in the woods. And so I'm, maybe I will, maybe, I, maybe you've dared me into reading just the very beginning about starting, you know, get a little sense from the, uh, th there's a, um, a kind of accidental rebellion, not quite accidental, but uh, underway, uh, led by a um, septuagenarian former radio talk show host who you'll meet in here. The, the morning crowd at the Bennington Starbucks, Bennington is a town in Vermont. The morning crowd at the Bennington Starbucks moved through the time-honored rituals with rote familiarity ordering their caffeine and caramel in pigeon Italian, waiting like school kids for their name to be called, and then either exiting into the faintly cool January air or sinking childlike into an oversized, overplushed armchair for a hit of the web. The stereo played over and over the same nine songs by aging, aged actually, guitar hero Peter Frampton, now appropriately acoustic. Then, right in the middle of some melancholy chord, a voice crackled over the sound system, a voice that some people in the coffee shop immediately recognized. Greetings, Green Mountain Starbuckers, said Vern Barkley in his deep radio baritone with just a hint of his Franklin County upbringing. This is a special message going out just to those of you in the 19 Vermont shops. The other 34,513 Starbucks scattered across the planet Earth and aboard our lazily orbiting space station will continue to listen to Mr. Frampton mark the launch of his new album on the Starbucks label. I know that all of us join in thanking the coffee giant for taking the musical icons of our various youths and encouraging them to noodle acoustically in the background. And it is a great pleasure to know that no matter which shop you visit, the soundtrack will be the same. It's almost as reassuring as the muffled badump badump of the womb. But today, your friends here at Radio Free Vermont, underground, underpowered, and underfoot, want to take this opportunity to patch into the streaming Starbucks signal and remind you that we still have coffee shops in this state actually owned by Vermonters. Coffee shops where the money in the till doesn't disappear back to Seattle. Where the... <laughs> where the cream and the mocha sexy capomoto comes from the cow down the road and where the music on the stereo might actually come from your neighbors. You can find a list at RadioFreeVermont.org if the authorities haven't managed to shut it down today. And don't bother telling them Vern sent you, they'll know. Remember, small is kind of nice. Meanwhile, about 60 miles north, a beer truck lumbered slowly off the Crown Point Bridge from New York and began the drive up Route 22 toward Burlington. It hadn't gone a mile before the driver came to an orange detour sign in the middle of the road and turned left on a dirt farm track. He drove about a mile more past cows staring impassively at the sides of his truck 
with its pictures of two young women in bikinis reclining in a hot tub and hoovering Coors Light long necks with an ardor that suggested deep and full-bodied pleasure. Around a bend in the road, the truck driver found another detour sign and followed it for two miles till yet another sign guided him down a dirt road next to a creek lined with willows, a creek still flowing in the mild January chill. After about a mile of that, with the road turning into a rut, he came upon a lady in a balaclava holding a stop sign. The driver braked, and as he did, two young men also in balaclavas appeared, one on either side of the truck. Each had a tire pressure gauge, and within seconds, air was hissing out of the front tires, and the trump slumped slightly forward. Apologies, said the lady in the balaclava. This will take a little while, I'm afraid. If you wanted to walk to the nearest house and call the police, that's fine, but it's about four miles. Or you could wait a little while, and then we'll fill your tires again. Anyway, we've made you a picnic. She put a paper sack on the seat beside him and started lifting things out. BLT with bacon from Vermont Smoke and Cure. A whole pint of Stratford Creamery Maple Walnut Ice Cream. And here's something special, a bottle of the new Long Trail Coffee Stout from Bridgewater Corners. The coffee doesn't come from Vermont, but it is roasted here. You can only have one because we're serious about DUI in this state, but I think you'll find it filling. And we've got a gift pack of beers from 78 of Vermont's brewers to send home with you. Did you know we had more breweries per capita than any place on earth? I have no idea why they think we need Coors too. <clears throat> While she talked, the two young men were busy hauling down cartons of the Coors. They opened each, quickly twisted the caps, and then turned the whole box upside down to drain. When the bottles were empty, they loaded the cartons into the back of two pickups. The driver watched from his rearview mirror, and after a little while, he finally spoke. Hey, lady, he said, this is going to take forever. I've got 1,200 cartons of Coors in that truck. Why don't you just toss them over the side and let me go? The woman looked up at him from above a draining carton of beer. Oh, sweetie, she said, this is Vermont. We recycle. <laughs> Three hours later, they were done. The balaclava-clad men pumped up his tires with a 12-volt air compressor and then disappeared into the small clay plain forest at the edge of the farm driveway. The woman thanked the driver and then disappeared herself. He couldn't think what else to do, so he started his truck and headed back toward the bridge in his home in New York. 4,800 bottles of Coors Lighter but with an impressive stack of cases of Vermont microbrew. The Holsteins stared at him with the same unimpressed gaze. So they, they get this sort of rebellion up and running and do what they can, you know. Um, and, but they're fugitives. The feds are on them and so on, and they're having to hide out and... and, and and that's hard, especially uh, for uh, Vern, who t likes to walk in the woods, you know, and has to be careful. But he does go out. I'll just, because I'm very homesick, I'm going to read just a little bit about this description of the eastern woods. Now, I'll preface it by saying that I love the western vistas as well. My father grew up, my grandfather was mayor of Kirkland, and my father went back when it was a little shipbuilding town, and my father grew up here, and I, you know, the happiest uh, memory of my life almost is walking the Wonderland Trail around Rainier with him 50 years after he'd done it as a boy, and you know. Um, but I do love the woods of the East, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read about them just for my own pleasure. 
Verne kept wandering. He'd spent enough time in the world's great landscapes to know this wasn't one of them. There weren't but a few acres of old-growth trees left in Vermont, and even they weren't especially grand. A few giant white pines, but nothing like a redwood. There were no seas of jagged granite peaks, no Class V whitewater cataracts. When the Audubon Society made calendars each year, 11 of the 12 pictures came from out west. With alpine glow and buck elk and wildflower meadows, Vermont always supplied October, and it was usually a close-up of a yellow maple leaf spinning in an eddy on some tiny stream. Still, he thought as he meandered, he wouldn't trade. Not Vermont for Montana, not Big Sky for the filtered glimpses of blue and white through the treetops, not hardwood for high granite. For one thing, when that yellow came to Vermont and the red and the orange with it, the colors kept you nearly giddy. And when it was over, it was even better. The leaves were down by mid-October, and you could see the shape of the land again, see the late sun silhouetting the trees along the ridgetops as it set. You could sense the architecture of the hills, every hollow and creek run and knoll visible from the road. When people thought of trees, they thought of leaves. That's how a child would draw them. But the natural inclination of trees at this latitude was bareness. Seven months of the year, they stood there stoic. Leaves were the summer fever dream exception to the barren rule, and Vern felt calmer once they were down. He hiked on, watching for the open seeps in what should have been an icy wood. Out west, when you walked, you looked up. The mountains were mostly open. You could see for miles, hundreds of miles. But Vermont was closed in. Now that the sheep were gone, more than four-fifths forest. You couldn't normally see a 100 feet in any direction, and so you tended to look down, and so the glories were minor key. The splay of a turkey-tail fungus on a down stump, the root of a birch arched high across a rock, a healthy pile of moose droppings, just smaller than ping-pong balls. Vern contemplated that last for a moment. You didn't see moose very often. You didn't see much wildlife because the woods were dense and it was easy for anything shy to disappear. He'd seen more deer in an afternoon at his sister's house in suburban Connecticut than in a season of sitting in the deer stand, rifle on his knees. He remembered a trip to Yellowstone when the kids were young and how odd it had seemed to be able to stand on a ridge and see bears and elk and bison wandering by below in full view. He felt a little embarrassed for them. It seemed much more natural just to come across traces, scat or a buck rub on the soft bark of a cedar or the claw marks of a bear after beech nuts. He didn't need to see the animal itself any more than he needed to see his neighbors in their houses when he drove down the road. The thin line of smoke coming up from the chimney was assurance enough. But knowing that that moose had returned to Vermont in his lifetime pleased him enormously. It was the idea that things repaired themselves, that if you backed off a little and didn't ask too much of the world, then it would meet you halfway. This was one of the few corners of the planet that had gotten better in the last century, he thought. Greener, healthier, the damage that too many sheep had done was wearing off. Or maybe you didn't even need to think of it as damage. It had been good then when Vermont was full of farmers, and it was good now when Vermont was full of trees. Life ebbed and flowed, came, went, Goodness didn't demand the one-way arrow toward progress and, and more. It was, he thought, a blessing to have lived out his life in a place that spun slowly like that yellow leaf in eddy in the American rapids, a place that was shrinking when most of the country was growing, growing, ever growing. But the too warm January breeze pulled Vern out of his contentment. He saw a sloppy pile of bear scat on the ground next to his foot, and he shook his head. Bears were not supposed to be out in the woods in January, not in Vermont. They should be in their dens. 
Vermont might be a place outside the world's rush, but the world's rush was doing it in. Winter was vanishing, uh, a fact he connected to that Starbucks, to the larger globe it in turn was linked to. You couldn't just ignore the world. That was the problem, because now it pressed in on you without regard for borders. Most presidents in his lifetime you could forget about for weeks at a time, but not this one with the endless twittering. Too much somewhere else became too much here. And that, maybe I'll read just to follow that one little bit at the very end. Um, it's an interesting question why this place where I live, Vermont, is sort of the way it is. It's the most rural state in the Union, the fewest people living in a city, and it's about as white as typing paper. I mean, it's about as undiverse as you can get. So it should be pure, full-on Trump country, and indeed just to the east, New Hampshire pretty much is, and just to the west, upstate New York pretty much was. And why in the middle this wasn't is not 100% clear. I think it probably has something to do with Vermont's odd history. It was an independent republic for 15 years before it joined the other 13 colonies, and that stuck, that sort of independent note stuck in. It's probably no accident that our junior senator is the longest serving independent member of Congress uh, uh, ever. Um, it also has this um, tradition of town meeting. We govern ourselves town by town. The first Tuesday in March, everybody gets together in rooms that look very much like this one and sit on uncomfortable, less comfortable than this folding chairs and uh, uh, figure out, you know, if there's another year left in the school roof and how much to put in the plowing budget and so on and so forth. And the result is that you don't, there's a certain mandatory neighborliness of a certain kind. I've sort of tried to imagine what would happen if someone like our president showed up at town meeting in the town of 400 where I live and began the sort of rants that he, you know, daily goes on on the Twitter. And, I mean, people would look at him oddly for a few minutes, and then they would tell him it's time to sit down and let somebody else talk, and that's not really the way that, you know, we do things here and so on. I mean, that would be that. And um, at any rate, one of, the, um, one of the things that I think a lot about when I think about resistance and organizing and trying to come up with creative ways to organize resistance has really been much of what I've you know, tried to work on with my colleagues over these last years. But one of the things I think a lot about is that question around civility. I mean, I have very firm convictions about the world and the arrest record to prove it, you know, but I don't like rancor and, and uh, it's a thing that just feels worse to me about the world we're living in at the moment. It's just the constant um, um, uh, sort of psychic assault of everybody. So the end of this thing there... Um, uh, the night before town meeting, when everybody's going to vote on secession with the, the feds really closing in, they're doing one last underground radio broadcast, but this time they've sort of set it up so they can take calls, and the very last caller calls in, 
and, and it's a guy who doesn't like what they're doing. Says, this is art from Essex Junction. I just want to say, I think this whole thing is so stupid. The U.S. is the greatest country on earth. If we were off by ourselves, if we seceded, we'd be crushed. We'd be Haiti with Holsteins. That's it, just stupid. Ed, said Vern, thanks for the call. And it's the right note to end on. Because I think you're wrong. I think we'd be more like Finland with fall colors. I think we've got plenty of brains and resources to do just fine on our own. But you may be right. And that's the point. I've sat behind a microphone and listened for decades as Americans learn to stop talking with each other and start shouting instead. No discussions, just socialist or fascist or feminazi or bigot or whatever. So here's what I want to say, and I think it's the one thing no one ever says anymore in our public life. I think you're wrong, but you may be right. Um, the, the publisher decided to call this a fable of resistance, which I was happy for because, as I say at the very end, in the author's note, an advantage to writing a fable is that you get to append a moral. Um, in this case, it's not that we should all secede. Instead, it's that when confronted by small men doing big and stupid things, we need to resist with all the creativity and wit we can muster. And if we can do so without losing the civility that makes life enjoyable, then so much the better. And that's what I think. I got to say, if we go to a second Trump administration, then I'm thinking seceding might be a better idea. And, <laughs> And, and I think there might be some way to sort of establish a northern bridgehead across the top here. Um, 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 the, the, um, this book is fairly soaked in beer, and, and that's obviously one of the things that unites the Northwest and, uh, and our, our little state. So um, um, cheers to you all. Thank you very much. <laughs> And we got a little time for questions. Um, but if people have questions about the book, that's fine. But if you also just have questions about uh, climate politics or any of that, I or I see Katie and Cam, and there's lots of uh, Seattle 350. We can all try to answer some of them. What was your take on Bonn? So we had a bunch of people in Bonn, and we've been getting the um, updates regularly. Um, my take was that the rest of the world is not yet following Trump's lead. I was very worried that people were going to use it completely as an excuse to just back off and do nothing anywhere else. Instead, I think there's a little bit of the opposite going on. Um, the Chinese in particular seem to have decided that this is the avenue through which they can seize some moral high ground in the world. And they're being a political force for good, and they're putting up renewable energy at an astonishing rate. Um, partly that's, of course, responding to the fact that their cities have become unlivable, and so they sort of have to. But, uh, but that was good. Um, um, people did a good job of uh, standing up to the US. The US sent a delegation to Bonn to organize a uh, presentation about coal and what a great thing it was. Uh, all 400 people in the audience apparently just stood up and walked out, which was the right, the right response. And, if, I mean, and people were basically just sort of, basically at the moment, the rest of the world is astonished 
by us. I mean, sort of dumbfounded. Like, and that's a good example. Like everybody else there is like batteries, electric cars, you know, and we're like, whoa, we have some excellent 18th century technology we'd like to show you here. You know, I mean, it's just the, the, the silliness of it is almost beyond belief. So, uh, you know, um, people are kind of holding it together, more or less. The problem is that, that the Paris Agreement wasn't good enough to accomplish a great deal. The hope was that it would set up enough momentum that we would come out of there and very quickly in this sort of new negotiating round that begins next year, people would dramatically improve on their Paris targets and things. I have the bad feeling that Trump's, uh, Trump will be able to rob it of a much of that momentum. Every world leader can now easily get away with being better than Trump. Um, and, and I mean, he's set, the global bar so low that last week, Syria, a country that doesn't even really have a government, you know, or a land mass or anything, managed to, uh, you know, uh, uh, sign up to the Paris Accord, leaving only us, you know, only the country that produced more carbon than any other since the fossil fuel age began, not participating. So, uh, you know, what can I tell you? When you travel abroad, uh, get your story down about how you come from Canada, you know, um, um, before you go, so. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with the Paul Hawking and the Hope Work yes. project. I'm just kind of thinking about, well, thinking about ways of combining a lot of the ideas from that with activism and how to sort of make some of those things come to Absolutely. The drawdown, and it's probably, there's probably a copy upstairs. Uh, it's good. It's an exhaustive list of, I got to work on it a little bit with them, which was fun. A uh, hundred ideas that sort of ranked about things that would, you know, help drive down. And some of them are, you know, basically three of the top ten have to do with renewable energy in one form or another, and, you know, the energy stuff. that, And so people are organizing around some of those. And, and I assume we'll be around some of the others. One of the problems, of course, with organizing is you have to try and pick a limited set of targets. Like we're in a, you know, there's an endless set of targets, but if you try to organize around all of them or even a bunch of them, it's like drilling 50 holes in a field instead of, you know, st and stopping at 10 feet with each one instead of drilling one or two wells down to where the water table is, you know. Um, and, and so we shall see, but I, it's a very, very useful uh, uh, exercise that they've undertaken and quite hopeful. Uh, I mean, that's the spirit that it's in. So I, I highly recommend it. Um, I assume you're a fan of uh, Edward Abbey and I enjoyed his readings. How much inspiration or the studiousness of his writing do you accept? Well, this, you've. Uh, you've You've completely uncovered my secret, you know. On the, um, the Monkey Wrench Gang is one of my favorite books ever. Um, and I knew Abby at the end of his life and liked him, and we got to spend some time together. And I, among other things, it's a great book because it's very funny. It must be said that for all the virtues of environmentalists, a sense of humor is not like absolutely at the top of the list, you know. And it's not just like the thing that springs immediately to mind when you think about environmentalists. So I'm always very grateful um, 
Um, to, and, and Abby was, uh, and so yes, this is a uh, this is in its way a, a little homage to uh, Abby. Um, there are a few other great. Uh, not very many. There's not enough books anyway about uh, organizing. Um, though Alex is threatening to bring his out here in America soon. Yeah, so that's good. Um, um, the um, a great book about organizing, and one of my favorite and funniest, and another book that is a children's book that may be here as well. A book called *The Pushcart War*. I don't know if anybody's ever read it, but it is half of what I know about how to organize came out of that book. I, I think there's no better guide because we were talking about this before we got here. Um, the point of organizing rarely is has much to do with the exact thing that you're organizing about at the moment, the particular pipeline. I mean, they're important. You have to try and stop the pipeline, the coal port, the whatever it is. But the real point of it is that it all has to add up to changing the zeitgeist somehow, changing the way that people see the world, changing our sense of what's normal, natural, inevitable, obvious. And if you can do that, and that's almost always has something to do at some level with storytelling, with telling a story that people can wrap their heads around and get engaged in. And so th that those for me are, are so I, I, I definitely, if you've never read The Pushcart War, it's, um, it's a beautiful book. Yes? So secession is kind of popular these days. Um, how did you feel about wrestling with that? Book? Yeah, I didn't. In this book, it serves mostly as a plot device, though he talks about it. So we, I talk about it. So, I mean, it's a hard. It's hard for me. Um, um, I'm a quite sentimental patriot in many ways. I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts. My summer job in high school was I'd put on the tricorn hat and go give tours of the battle green telling people the story of the first fight of the American Revolution, which in many ways, if you think about it, it's sort of hard for us to remember given what we've become, but was also really the first fight about against colonialism and imperialism and you know so on uh, on the planet in a sort of organized fashion. And so my you know, endless admiration for certain parts of American history is very real and, um, and Abraham Lincoln is among my great heroes on the planet. And I continue to think that it would be best if we figured out how to uh, pull things together. Um, um, Vermont actually probably can't secede. We're a very old state, second oldest, grayest state in the union. All it would have to do is just threaten to cut off social security and we'd capitulate <laughs> instantly, okay? But I don't quite understand like the West Coast. I mean, I was down in California some last week. California's got 40 million people. It's got the fifth biggest economy in the world. Uh, it's basically Germany. And it's got, you know, with Washington and Oregon, it's basically got, I don't know, like the Netherlands and Belgium are sort of, sort of appended to it, you know. <laughs> Prosperous places dominating the most important industries in the world. California has 40 million people. It gets the same two senators that Vermont gets. There's something very weird about the whole, I mean, and it just sort of gets weirder with each passing year. Um, I'm not, I don't know how long it all 
holds together. I mean, I'm not, it's possible that 300 million people is a large number to try and govern getting all in the same direction, you know? One of the reasons that I really like Vermont is because of scale. I think scale is a variable that we don't pay enough attention to. We spend an awful lot of time on ideology and so on and so forth, but scale is incredibly important. Once you're past a certain size, it becomes very difficult for anyone to know what's going on, pay any attention to what's happening. Um, and that's not true when the scale's small enough that you really can keep track of things. So, who knows? Um, 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 uh, we shall see. If California decides to go, you know, I, if I were you guys, I'd you know at least consider the possibility of tagging along. You know, I mean, there's a uh, it's it's. Well, we have our own region, North Yes, absolutely, Cascadia. Cascadia. Yeah. And Ernest Kallenbach's so book, you know, is worth rereading too from time to time. That yeah, what's it, Ecotopia? Is yes. that yeah, yes. yeah? We could probably do okay. Oh, you you certainly have you know I mean you won't run out of coffee and uh, <laughs> beer and and you know Amazon will deliver whatever you need till the end of time. So <laughs> it's yeah you know it's. What are you going to do? Um, you've seen a lot of uh, prominent Democrats and people who are always like, speculating 2020 contenders take up uh, the Medicare for All mantle um, mm. as part of what they would envision, I guess, like, the response to be in 2020. Um, and now, I guess, that would be no small part because of the pressure that was applied when the pill and replace machinations were underway a few months ago. Um, do you foresee? Something similar occurring with environmental yep. activism and enveloping the Democratic process? Very much. Yeah. I wrote a piece the other a couple of weeks ago saying that I think that the if, if I were the Democrats, I'd run on, I mean, on, if, the, if you're listing slogans that you can sort of get people's minds around, Medicare for all, $15, fight for 15, and 100% renewable energy are the those are the three things that I'd try and sort of really get, because I think that they they address um, the last, you know, the last kind of unsolved question of the 20th century, why on earth we don't have medical care for Americans like everybody else in the world does. The great yawning social problem of the moment, this sort of insane inequality that now drives so much else, and by far the biggest problem we've ever faced, climate change, you know, do it. And I, I, I will say that um, the person who's best and most disciplined about repeating all these things and getting them in the public consciousness is Bernie, and he's doing, I, I've got him well-schooled now on 100% renewable, you know, he, we sit and tie him, yes, 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 he's good. And, and he's, in, you know, he, is, he has legislation to that effect, you know, I mean, he, so uh, we'll see uh, if he can sort of, he's managed to bring people around very much on the Medicare for all thing and getting lots of mainstream Democrats in doing it. Maybe he'll be able to do some of the same with, with these other things. But it's very important when you're running a presidential campaign to have a few things that you can just say short, quickly and concisely and that stick in people's heads and seem logical. And those three seem logical to me. Yes? Given what happened today, I have that question. Yes. Um, to what extent was this 
third route anticipated by Janet Clev and those folks? And to what extent do you think it's kind of a, a way to neutralize the, the landowners that are so active because they moved it away from most of the opponent's property? These are very good questions and to which no one knows the answer. Um, they were as surprised as anybody by the outcome this morning. Um, and uh, and I, I mean, I really think nobody knows, including TransCanada, who put out an opaque press release in the middle of the afternoon just saying we're reevaluating the, what, I mean, I don't, I don't think they can take another year or two of delay. I think the carrying costs on this thing are enormous. And I think that each year we go along, the preposterousness of building a pipeline from the tar sands that's supposed to last 50 years becomes more apparent. I mean, it's crazy 50 years from now if we're, we're not going to be driving cars that require you know, tar sands oil to you know, fuel them. I mean, it's just the whole thing is nuts. And I've always thought that if we could hold things off for a little while. On the other hand, there's a lot of pressure for it coming from not only from Trump, but from the Canadian government. Our colleagues have done such a good job in blocking pipelines to the west and east in Canada, the Energy East Pipeline, the Northern Gateway Pipeline, hopefully the Kinder Morgan Pipeline going into Vancouver, that there's a lot of pressure built up. And the Canadians are, you know, happily, uh, Justin Trudeau, who's one of the, gets away with a lot, um, 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 is you know happily working hand in hand with Trump uh, because the happiest outcome for him would be a pipeline through the middle of our country, you know, uh, to carry his oil. So, it's it's the wire. I mean, it's wired. It's there. But so far, I mean, the fact that we're even still having this discussion is crazy. I mean, when we started this thing in 2011, we knew we were going to lose. We had no chance whatsoever. I mean, just none. And then people did amazing organizing and lots of people went to jail and it became an issue. But even then we should have lost. I mean, there were three or four votes in the House and the Senate over the next two or three years and they were decided by a vote or two votes. And we thought we were gonna lose. In fact, I was thinking today, one of those times in the middle of the vote in the Senate, TransCanada put out a press release thanking the Senate for backing their uh, thing. They, they pushed the button too early and they lost by a vote and they'd put out this press release. They were so sure it's going to win. There's been a kind of, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Methodist Sunday school teacher, so what can I tell you? There's been a, you know, so far, uh, you know, the good Lord has, has played her part in uh, uh, helping out with this particular uh, uh, thing, God watches over fools, and you know we've it's it's been we've we've so I, I continue to hope that in the end. But I wrote a piece for the New Yorker this afternoon. Even if we, even if this loses, it was entirely worth the fight because what it did, it's hard for sort of to remember now, but it was the first thing like this. No one had ever really tried to stop one of these big fossil fuel industry infrastructure projects because they seemed unstoppable, you know. But the demonstration that they weren't, that you could at least neutralize or hold these guys to a tie or whatever, within a year or two, everything was being fought all over the place, you know. And, and it's amazing how often when we fight 
we win. I mean, I think the things that people in Seattle and Portland did to bring down Shell Oil's plans to drill in the Arctic were some of the most beautiful organizing on the whole planet. And they were so beautiful, those kayaktivists out there. And I know this for a fact because I've talked to people in Shell. That's what did it, the brand damage that they were knew they were suffering. The, you know, uh, as people stood up to them was just too much. It wasn't worth the, you know, they'd rather take the billions of dollars in loss and walk away from it because the, and, and place after place, you know, we're not winning everything, but we're winning tons of them. And, and, and so that, it, that turns out to have been an extremely important uh, line in the tar sands, as it were, to draw originally, because it's, it's redounded in lots of good ways. There's sort of a high school civics view, you know, a lot of our high schools don't teach civics anymore, how uh, issues get addressed in our country and how things <coughs> happen, how uh, change happens. And it's the press covers an issue, the people uh, absorb it, and they write their congressman or congresswoman. And that doesn't seem to affect uh, bring about change. Um, yeah, so there's, there's probably different scales of issues. There's, you know, issues that you can deal with in normal ways to some, or to some degree, I guess, or there should be. And certainly in local communities and things there are and so on. But then there are issues that are so large that, and so stubborn and where the other side is so strong that there's no real possibility of normal politics getting done what needs to be done. It's crazy that it has to be that way. I mean, we've had for 30 years a unanimous warning from the world scientists that the worst thing that ever happened is in the process of happening, and they've told us what to do about it and so on and so forth, and we basically have done nothing. Our political systems have not reacted in, in any way. So it's crazy that people have to go to jail in order to make people listen to, you know, basic physics and chemistry, but that appears to be, an, you know, have been a necessary part of this thing. It's crazy that people have to get out. I mean, think about that Shell Arctic thing. <clears throat> Scientists had patiently explained that if we burned a lot of coal and gas and oil, we would heat the planet and melt the poles. Indeed, this happened. Um, Shell Oil fourth or fifth biggest company in the world, didn't look at that experience and say, huh, perhaps we should go into the solar panel business or something. Maybe this isn't working out so well. No, they looked at that and said, having melted the Arctic, it will now be much simpler for us to drill for oil up there, you know, which is, I mean, that makes you begin to wonder whether the big brain was a useful adaptation or not, you know? Um, um, and I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's, I mean, there's nothing, but in our political economic system, it's like, yes, that's just normal business operation as usual, go ahead and do it. The President Obama said, fine, go ahead and do it. Um, here's the permit. Um, happily, there were enough Northwesterners with reasonable brains and large hearts attached to them that were willing to get out in kayaks and get in the way. And that was 
exactly what it took. And there was no other thing that would have sufficed in order to do it, you know? And there are a hundred examples like that around the world. So, uh, you know, uh, would that it were otherwise, um, 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 would that it were otherwise in part because then I would be able to stay home in Vermont and drink beer and <laughs> cross-country ski. And I will say also that this book has, I think, the only cross-country ski chase scene <laughs> in American literature. So just be warned, if your heart can't deal with that kind of tension and stress, then... Um, Yes. Well, this is our, especially our friend Emily Johnson, who's one of the great organizers that I know. And when is the the trial is currently set for mid December or? No, so they, they were granted it, and then the, it's going to appeal, so the prosecutor is appealing. The necessity defense. Uh -huh. So hopefully that appeal is bold. Some, sometime coming up. And th these, these were the people who turned the valve on the thing and then sat there patiently, like, like not such criminals waiting to be arrested. Um, um, and now they've convinced the court to let them offer a defense of necessity. We did this because otherwise, I mean, we, we have to because no, other things are not working to, st and it's very important to defend, I mean, it's very rare that we our legal system grants this right to do it, and when it happens, it's an important opportunity to try and raise these issues in courts of law. And what's very interesting is how often it works. Um, when a jury has to sit there, and juries usually take their jobs very seriously, and when a jury sits there and listens, I mean, most people have never really heard the scientists sit and explain patiently exactly what's going on and how it works and things. They often uh, find people not guilty, or even if they do find them guilty, they often express later the thought that they should, you know, that they're grateful for this uh, uh, action. and. And it often is an important thing. I mean, this is one good uh, uh, front in this fight, and we're so grateful to them for doing it. it. It's a fight with many, many fronts, and we've always got to remember that none of them are you know, going to get this done on their own. And we need lots of roles for people who are not planning to go to prison for long periods of time and you know, so on and so forth. Um, but this is a really wonderful action that these guys have, have done. And, and I hope that when the trial comes, there'll be lots of people there to support them. Um, um, any of that stuff is scary too, you know, if you're uh, freedom and whatever's on the line, so. Yeah, and it's uh, not just there are many, many roles and there are many, many fronts. Uh, I want to invite anybody who's not plugged into any of the fronts here. We've got actually multiple 350 chapters represented in the room. My name is Megan. I do mailing work with the Seattle chapter, and I am happy to put you on our mailing list. We've got Guys.
there you are. These guys do exceptionally good work, it must be said. And, uh, and you would enjoy, uh, uh, enjoy getting in trouble with them. Um, <laughs> making trouble is a very high art, you know, and, and uh, we, don't, we don't do enough of it. Is my, um, do we have time for one more here? And then we'll, Sam, what's the score of the Seahawks game? Oh, you haven't looked, good. All right, all right, one more. Christopher, mm. uh, he went back to school at Harvard Divinity School, and you mentioned that you're a Methodist mm. Sunday school teacher, which is super tender. So I was wondering uh, if you feel like, uh, I feel like one of Tim Christopher's points is that the environmental movement really is like a spiritual foundation at this point, and a soul, and do you think we're finding our feet in terms of that element of Yeah, absolutely. So Tim, first of all, is a great story and a great man and a great friend, he um, was this guy in Utah who uh, pretended to, well, he did bid on oil and gas leases at an auction. Um, if what he, the pretending part was that he did not have the large sum of money that he had bid. <laughs> um, and when they found out that he lacked the large sum of money, they put him in jail for two years. I remember going to visit him at the federal penitentiary in on the Nevada-California border where, and it was pretty not nice. Um, um, but he came out uh, as strong and engaged as ever. Now he has, he's gone through Harvard Divinity School. Um, he's Unitarian and he's also founded what's called the Climate Disobedience Center, which is one of the groups that's working with uh, Emily and her colleagues on this necessity defense stuff and things. Um, yeah, I think that uh, the involvement, that one of the best things that's going on right now is the increased involvement of religious and spiritual communities of all kinds. It's something I've worked on some over the years, always as a sort of side part of what I do, because I thought it was important. Um, 25 years ago, there was no religious environmental movement at all. Liberal churches, thought of this stuff as a luxury that you got to once you dealt with the important stuff, poverty and hunger and war. Conservative churches thought it was like a way station on the road to paganism. You know, no one wanted to touch it. That's changed in many ways now and across many communities, including even parts of the evangelical community in this country. Um, and we were talking about this earlier, the next frontier for this, we hope, is really strong engagement from the Catholic Church. Pope Francis wrote the most important document of the 21st century so far, that encyclical, Laudato Si. It's a thoroughgoing critique of modernity grounded in reflection on the climate crisis. So yeah, I think it's coming and I think it can't come soon enough. And I think we're probably gonna need it more than ever in the wake of, we're gonna have, I mean, I, don't, I haven't really thought this out. I don't quite, but I just, there's some sense in me that we're gonna need something, in the wake of Trump and the damage that's been done, we're gonna need some kind of moral reappraisal in our country. We're, we gotta do, you know, somehow repair 
some of the the horribleness that we've allowed to kind of uh, come to dominate things. And I don't know quite what that's going to look like, but I have no doubt that um, spiritual practice and and thinking is going to play some role in making it in in trying to make it happen. Um, um, uh, that's too dark a note to end on. So let me just say, I do retain great hope that um, um, this resistance that sprung up is going to continue to grow until it's no longer a kind of resistance, until it's the main thing that there is. I think that the good news of the last two or three years is that there are a lot of people who are thinking the same way. It's got to be a good sign that the most popular politician in America by a large margin is Bernie Sanders. Um, it's got to be a good sign. We've had the largest gatherings in American history, perhaps, things like the Women's March. Um, um, it's got to be a good sign that people are, are continuing this work. And the next stop is noon tomorrow, Westlake Plaza, yes? Westlake, Westlake Park. Um, um, be there uh, tomorrow at noon, yes? Westlake Center, J.P. Morgan Chase. J.P. Morgan Chase, all right. Remind them. Exactly right. Thank you guys enormously.